Uh, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12? If you're using the Bible that's in the pew or chair, it's on page 1009. Hebrews chapter 12 will begin with verse 5, which is the section that specifically addresses our relationship as sons and daughters and the discipline that God brings into our lives. You can find the uh, outline in the bulletin there as well. Beginning with verse 5, and and this verse is almost a a surprise. It It has a sense of surprise. You can't believe that they aren't viewing their discipline in a, in a correct way. Because actually, as these difficult things are coming into their lives, there's the danger of abandoning Christ, the danger of apostasy that they are facing. And so he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not... F- Regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with with tears. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we face what is a difficult subject. We face a difficult life, Lord. We face a life in which we do not know all the shape and contours of suffering and loss that we will experience in this world. Will the Lord help us to see what it truly is? The kind and gracious discipline of our Father who is furthering us on the pathway of holiness and goodness. And strengthen us, Lord. Give us hope uh, that we may make a path with our feet. And that, Lord, we will 
continue to embrace, rely on the grace of God, that it may have its full and rich effect in our lives. For this we pray in in Jesus' name. Amen. She is called the uh, greatest spoiled girl of all time. Who do you think that would be? Veruca Salt of Willy Wonka, of course. Every time you see her, she's pitching a fit. She's kicking something. She's throwing something. She's complaining about something. And it all has its great climax, right? As she sings the anthem for spoiled children everywhere. I want it now. And it has her ending her song, standing on the egg analyzer, which opens up. She goes down the garbage chute and it indicates bad egg. And when her simpering, whining father, who calls her sweetheart an angel, as she pitches her fits, jumps down the chute with her, the machine again indicates, ding, bad egg, right? So the Oompa Loompas at this point, I won't sing the song, but this is what they say. Who do you blame when your kid is a brat, pampered and spoiled like a Siamese cat? Blaming the kids is a lion of shame. You know exactly who's to blame. The mother and the father, right? So, a statement that he's the bad egg that produced the bad egg. And kids, you know that if her daddy really loved her, if he wasn't just afraid of her and trying to avoid conflict, if he really loved her, he would have taught her, right? He would have trained her. He would have disciplined her so that she wouldn't become a person that no one could even stand to be around. And the pastor who wrote Hebrews is telling them that their own suffering for persecution, from persecution, is a part of God's fatherly discipline. When you're being persecuted, you might think that God has abandoned you. Where is God in the midst of this? Why is he letting this happen to me? In fact, he's actually a sign that he loves you just like a father who in love trains and disciplines his children. That's the analogy he is painting here. So first, we want to understand something of God's discipline and then understand something of God's grace. Now, I use the word something, and as well in the title, understand what you can of God's work in your life, because we can't understand everything about his discipline or everything about his grace. So a little tip of the hat to some humility here, that we'll know something of the way his discipline works and the way his grace works, but of course not everything. So... His discipline, uh, and by the way, before we start on this part for the ladies and girls, he's not leaving you out when he says, for instance, in verse five, he addresses you as sons because sons in that day had a favored position in the household, but the Bible includes you in that favored position. So it doesn't ignore the fact that you're feminine, it simply includes you in the great privilege of sonship, okay? It's a sign of your equal honor as sons. And so you could translate it in our context, sons and daughters, but it still would lose that flavor of the 
uh, privilege of sons. But notice how much he emphasizes that in verse 5. He addresses you as sons, then he quotes from Proverbs 3, and then in verse 7 after that he says he's treating you as sons. It's this filial relationship, this child-to-parent relationship. And the quote itself, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It's, the, the picture is embrace and cherishing you. And because of that, he disciplines you. It's in his embrace that he disciplines you. It's in his cherishing of you that he disciplines you. And not to be disciplined would be to be forgotten uncared for. You see your child running in the street and you shrug your shoulders and say, I don't care if it gets hit or not. I don't care if she touches the stove or not. I don't care if she's mean or not. I don't care. That's a sign that you don't love a child. And so he's, he's saying, this is because you are children. We are included in his kind and gracious Discipline, But what constitutes this discipline? That is, what is it? What does it look like? So we'll look a little bit at what is this discipline and then what does this discipline do in our life? So try to understand something of it. In this context, in Hebrews, discipline is coming in the form of out-and-out persecution against them. Uh, The loss of property, imprisonment, and coming down the road, death itself. Even though he can say, uh, as he says earlier, you've not yet suffered blood, but they were headed that way. But it's proper to argue by extension that all suffering and loss in this life of any sort constitutes a part of God's discipline process. Even loss you suffered in childhood, even organic or physical conditions that you're in. All relational difficulties and suffering, everything that we suffer in this life constitutes or falls under this umbrella of his discipline. And this is how we must define our difficulties. Uh, it's better in verse 7 to, uh, to translate this as an imperative. Endure it as a discipline. Okay? That is, picture it. Know what it is. This is discipline I am enduring. So that I understand my difficulties and tragedies and disappointments and and losses as discipline. Do not think that God has abandoned you. Do not think that he's turned his back on you or neglected you. Do not think that he must not care about you and your happiness It's because he's not abandoned you, but because he is with you. It is the sign of his fatherly care. You got to think of it that way. That's what he's saying. This is discipline. It is his kindness. Of course, you may be thinking, well, I'd like a little less fatherly care if you don't mind. Right? I get that, and and certainly the pastor gets it, right? In verse 11, he says, well, for the moment, all discipline is grievous. Every single scrap of discipline is painful. It's not pleasant. He understands that. Suffering and loss is real. It hurts. Many times it's so devastating, you don't know how you're going to get through it. 
However, he disciplines those whom he loves. And really, if there's something to be concerned about, it would be that you do not have any discipline in your life. That, that would be a greater sign that God has pushed you aside than the fact that you're suffering loss of some kind. It's just, just the opposite of what we tend to think. Discipline is a sign of his protection. It's a sign of his blessing upon you. It is a sign that you are true heirs of his kingdom. It is a sign of your royalty that you are being prepared to reign with him forever. After all, you're his children and he loves you. So that's what discipline is. That's, it's, it's this suffering that comes into our life in all of these ways. Well, what does it do for us? He compares, he says that while uh, here, uh, here our, our fathers disciplined us for a short time, it's temporary, as it seemed best to them, which, seems, uh, which means that it was not always perhaps the best discipline. Okay? They did as they saw fit. There were limitations to it. But now we're being disciplined by the father of spirits. That is the father of all uh, his people, uh, calling them spirits at this point. The father of all. And we're being disciplined for our good, which means our eternal good to contrast the short time our fathers disciplined us. And notice especially that we might share in his holiness. That's why he's disciplining So know a little bit of what it is. This is what it does for us. It causes us, helps us share in his holiness. And remember, God's holiness is his beauty. It's his goodness. A holy king, for instance, is one who is fair and just. Uh, Say a rich baron is cheating one of the people that works for that baron. And they're before the king as judge. And he's trying to slip a little money to the king so the king will allow him to go free and cheat. And the holy king will say, no way in the world. I'm not supporting you against this weak person. I stand for the weak and the helpless. A holy king will not lie. A holy king will not steal from his subjects. He will not have another woman on the side, even though he could have many and no one could stop him. He'll be devoted to his wife. He'll treat his wife with kindness and love. He'll even lay down his life to protect his people because he's holy. Holy is good. Holy is good. And God is good and holy and he's making us like himself. And one of the ways he does it is through the discipline that he brings into our lives. So that we will share his holiness and goodness. It says back in chapter 10 that through Christ's work, we were made holy. And that means that we were separated out so that we would belong exclusively to God and would become like him. And so the discipline process is ushering us further into that holiness. 
further into God likeness. And that means two things. First, just that we're more and more attached to him and devoted to him. We admire him more and more. We're more and more in awe of him. We're more and more joyful in worship. We perceive his beauty and with it we become more sensitive to sin and we hate sin. And so is the corollary to becoming more uh, dedicated to God we become more holy and good to other people. Less, more forgetful of self, more devoted to their good. It's called in verse 11, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's a beautiful description. The shalom of living in a righteous way. That's the fruit of discipline. The shalom, the wholeness of being put together, back together as a human being in the image of God. That's what discipline does for us. He's enabling us to share his very holiness. I love the scene in the seventh book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. And I know many of you have read this. But heaven is portrayed as a bigger, more beautiful Narnia than the one they were in, kind of a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. But then beyond that is another Narnia and another Narnia and another, and each one's bolder and brighter and more expansive and beautiful than the one before. And so the the picture of heaven is running with this endless energy and joy, running more and more deeply into the beauty of heaven. And here's the cry they hear, come further up, come further in, further up, further in. And that's the cry of God's discipline in your life. Further up, further in to holiness and goodness as God brings it about in this what will be a very difficult process at times. But what a fruit, (laughs) It's, it's, you're really tasting of heaven. You, you are an outpost of heaven. You're an outpost of the new creation. And in you is being formed the beauty of that new creation. In your very fellowship. In the way we treat one another. In the way we spend ourselves for others. And that's what his discipline is doing, waving you in, drawing you in further and further into fellowship with God and likeness to God. Because in discipline, you learn to trust him in new ways. You manifest your allegiance to him in new ways. You show love to others even as you suffer and that strengthens your love. It it causes it to be bold. You become more self-forgetful in your devotion to the good of others. And isn't it amazing that this process, of course it was different because he was sinless. But in chapter 5 verse 8, this pastor wrote of Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What? In other words, he learned what it meant to obey in the midst of a cursed world. He learned what it, how it would show itself in specific ways in the the face of sin and rejection. He learned 
what obedience would cost. And the beauty of his character displayed itself in more and more glorious ways in the midst of suffering. That's what happens with you. That's what happens with you. Your character is displayed in the midst of suffering. Your holiness shining forth in new colors and new tones, all to the glory of God. So we can understand something of what discipline is or, and, and what, how it comes to us and what it does for us. But then finally, something of God's grace. This is especially brought out in verse 15, but let me give a little context for this statement. Uh, he, he then, in verse 12, after describing all of these things in uh, verses 5 through 12, 11, he begins to apply it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. Probably as a boxing analogy where you're, you've been boxing and you can't even lift your hands anymore and your feet, your legs are gone. Uh, and so he's saying in that context where you appear to be giving up, strengthen yourself. And better translation is make straight paths with your feet, not just for your feet. Let your feet, uh, one translator says, beat a path to the city of God. And then your example will help others who feel lame to be healed and to give themselves to that race. That's the picture here. You become strong in his grace and the hope of what he's doing in your life and face what loss may come in persecution so that you can help others not be lame, but to be healed. And then when he says pursue holiness in verse 14, he means to continue in this holiness, to continue to develop holiness, continue to walk in it, protect it and guard it. Just As you will, you do peace, the the peace and the wholeness of the congregation. And so that peace cannot be maintained without this holiness and goodness that's at the root of peace. And he says that those people who are on this path of holiness, never perfect in it, far from it, but they're on the path. They are the ones who will see the Lord. Those who are unwilling to be disciplined under the Lord, who who do not treasure Jesus enough to serve him in the midst of suffering. And that becomes the way of their life. They will not see the Lord. It's not something you earn. It's it's a sign of whether you've really you really are enjoying and trusting in his forgiveness and acceptance. If you're trusting in his forgiveness and acceptance and you're overjoyed at that, you're you're changed by it. You you are. You're changed by it. And you want to belong to him no matter what the cost because you can't believe that you're forgiven. You can't believe what it means to belong to God and have all your sins taken away, as Philip said earlier. And it will not be perfect, but you will be on that path. And then, after saying that don't, not to fall short of the grace of God, he speaks of this root of bitterness, this, this, uh, what can happen when one person 
turns away from God and draws many others like in the wilderness. A few people drew the whole congregation away. And that's what he's speaking of. That's what he's referring to. But then he ends with this example of Esau. Esau exchanging the whole promise and inheritance of God for one meal. We don't have time for the whole story. Jacob comes in and uh, or Esau comes in and he's famished and Jacob will fix him some food. But he says, trade me your birthright. He says, what do I care? Sure. And you think how different this was than Moses who had all of Egypt before him, all the pleasures and wealth and privilege of Egypt. And he gave it all up in order to suffer for, with the people of God. And Esau gives up his privilege for a meal. You see the picture he's painting here for these people. If you turn away from Christ, it is like Esau. You're throwing away everything. And whatever it is you're throwing away for, whatever it is you're committing to, to turn away from Jesus, it all amounts to one measly meal. He wasn't sexually immoral that we know, but they're likening his his wanting the pleasure of this world and that he paid for this pleasure like someone who hires a prostitute. And that's why he's called immoral. So controlled by bodily desire that he gave away everything to have it. And this is taken from Deuteronomy 29, This the, the language here uh, in which uh, the people of God would uh, deny the covenant of God And it shows that the modern equivalent, like if you reject Jesus, especially here speaking to the Jews of whom he is largely writing, the the Christian Jews. If you as a Jewish person turn away from Christ and think that you're returning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, you're returning to Esau. That's what you're coming to. You are turning away from God to become an Esau. If you turn away from Christ. That's the weight of this. And he was. When it says he sought it with tears. It means he sought the blessing. Not repentance. He didn't seek repentance. He didn't care about repentance. But he, he cared about what he lost. And he wept over having lost it. But no desire to repent. And so. In this context, he says in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The grace of God. One has said the godless person is one who's received the promise of God, but lives as if God's power were not real and his promises of reward are not valid. That his promises are not valid. His power is not real. Esau treated God's power as insufficient to meet his need. His promise of future blessing was worthless. And so for us, and I want to say this in a very personal way. 
We can isolate, we, we can be selective as we refuse his grace. Like maybe it's a fear of meeting people or fear of, of meeting people in a neighborhood, a fear that we've really given ourselves to for years. Are you saying no to the grace of God that forgives you, accepts you, and embraces you, and is there to have you change? Are you just marking it off and saying that that area is shut down? You, you just got to stay away from that area. Or could it be anger or jealousy or lust? And you're saying to God, this is my area, hands off. That would be a part of what he says here, falling short of the grace of God or saying no to grace and just living with the way things are. His grace is always there for forgiveness and transformation. And so we must submit to his grace in all areas of our lives. And brothers and sisters, be careful because if we are isolating our lives and saying no to his grace, you're saying no to his acceptance. You're saying no to his forgiveness. You're saying, I don't want the fruit of that forgiveness and acceptance. I don't want that forgiveness and acceptance so working in my life so that I forgive and accept and love others sacrificially. I don't, I don't want that forgiveness. Now, we don't never do this perfectly. And yes, we're always coming up against our refusal of his grace and we have to work through it and it takes time and a long time for us to continue to change. So I'm not talking about perfection, but I am saying that you will not be comfortable with those areas of your life. You will not be comfortable because you're not going to fall short of his grace. You're not going to refuse that grace. You're not going to say no to the things that God wants to do. You're not going to build castles for your life and a moat around it to keep people out at the costly business of love. All the while saying, I want to be loved by God. His love transforms you. It does. It will. I end with this familiar to some of you quote by... C.S. Lewis, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Some of you, that would not be hard, right? You don't like animals, but... Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And I would say Vulnerable to the grace of God and therefore vulnerable to continual change in your life. Let us pray. Oh Lord, enable us to embrace your discipline 
and to embrace, Lord, your grace itself. Oh, Lord, to see your work in our lives through our suffering and, Lord, to open our lives widely to your abundant grace that forgives, accepts, embraces, and transforms continually. Set our eyes on the great horizons where your grace will take us as we submit to your kindness. Oh, Lord, thank you that we are your workmanship, the work of your grace that you have started and you will continue to the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.